0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
0: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, we do have this economy gradually reopening, and the discussion is shifting more and more about how... F- People will come back to work. Will they come back to the offices? To what degree? Under what schedule? Lots of different models out there being discussed. Erica Volini, Gloomal, uh, Global Human Capital Leader at Deloitte, joins us on the phone from Phoenix. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to get your thoughts about what your clients are telling you about how they plan to bring their employees back to work as this economy gradually reopens.
2: Thanks. I think the key word is flexibility. Um, Employers are thinking very carefully about how to set a flex way of working. We're seeing this across the board. Um, The question is the degree of flexibility that's going to be offered, whether it's a a finite, you can come back, you you work from home X number of days a week, or whether it's going to be ultimate flexibility, do your job as you think it's best to do it, I think are the questions that are out there. But there is definitely a recognition that workers want more choice in terms of how they do their work um, and where they do their work.
1: I'd love to be in Phoenix, to (laughs) tell you the truth. Erica, do you see so many people talked about at least a move to Florida, going down to Texas, to Arizona, to California. Do you see big business hubs actually spreading out a little bit?
2: I think there's a recognition that geography, especially in a world of more remote work, becomes less critical, right? Office proximity is not a defining factor in terms of whether you can get a job. I think we're seeing migration to other other areas, um, for sure. But there are tax implications. Uh, there are benefit implications, right, that employers have to work through. And I think we're going to see that over the next few months slash years as employers try to figure out exactly how much flexibility they want to give. But the benefit is huge. Think about the ability to tap into labor markets that have historically not been available to these organizations, uh, fresh labor pools, um, individuals who want to be reskilled and retrained and be able to enter into the the workforce in different types of jobs. So I think we will see uh, much more flexibility in organizations saying, you don't have to be geographically close to where the office is.
0: What are you hearing from employees, uh, Erica? I, I, are they going to revolt if they're <laughs> told to come back into the office after you know 12-plus uh, months of uh, working from home?
2: I think revolt is a strong word, and I don't think it's necessarily just about can I work from home or, or can't I. I think what workers are going to say is you need to be caring for me. You need to focus on my well-being. You know, our 2021 Global Human Capital Trends Report at Deloitte is showing us that well-being is the number one trend. Um, workers are expressing they need their well-being cared for. Um, they need to know they have flexibility to deal with what they have in their lives. And so what they're asking for from employers is understand my needs and give me the ability to flex as I need to to be able to make those, meet those needs and also be productive at work. And I think what we've learned in the past year is that is possible um, you know, with the right um, leadership, with the right programs in place, place, the right policies, and frankly, with a degree of trust and empowerment for workers. And I think that's the main theme we're hearing from workers right now.
1: What do you think we're going to see in terms of female employees? I mean, um, I've heard so many stories about bankers, women who are paid a lot and they were forced to decide between childcare and going into work. They chose uh, childcare and and gave up those big paychecks. I myself just had a baby. My wife took a year off to take care of the kid. I took a month um, because I'm lazy. Her job is so much harder than than mine. Um, Are we going to see big changes there? We just saw Volvo USA, for example, getting 20 Four weeks to men or women when they have a, a baby? I,
2: I think so. I mean, I have a two and a half year old, so I completely understand um, being a working woman. Listen, I think, um, you know, Kamala Harris called it a crisis the number of women that are leaving uh, the economy. I think it is. Organizations recognize that having um, a diverse workforce is critical to innovation and creativity. So I think employers are going to lean in. I think it's going to be in the form of. You know, we're going to take a closer look at childcare, at benefits, giving that level of flexibility. I also think we're going to see and have seen deliberate efforts by organizations to hire women um, and to create programs to hire women into positions to make sure um, that we are getting that kind of equity in the workplace. So that's absolutely going to be um, an uptick in what we're seeing. What we have to realize is it's not just about hiring, though. It's also about reskilling and retraining. You know, um, the majority of employers are saying their biggest issue is having the right workers with the right set of skills and capabilities to be able to do the jobs of the future. And we're going to need to see massive investments in reskilling and retraining to be able to make all of this happen. And I I think that can't be lost. As I look at the, you know, Biden's latest plan, I see a hundred billion dollars for worker training. Is that enough? Um, you know, do we need to invest more? What's the role of organizations playing in that? I think those are all big questions that need to be answered.
0: So it's interesting, Erica, you know, in the beginning of this pandemic, we heard from some of the technology companies that said, OK, folks, if you want to leave Silicon Valley and, and work remotely and, you know, from Boise, Idaho or something, we're going to have to adjust your compensation for the different cost of living. What are we seeing from corporate America as they think about a remote workforce?
2: Absolutely. I mean, geographic pay differentials. I think are a hot topic right now. I think we will, on the whole, start to see adjustments if people are living in lower cost locations. Their pay will be adjusted accordingly to reflect cost of living. I'd revolt, and, um, I, I, I I'd think revolt there. Un- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't accept that, Erica. You know what? Because that's
3: you wouldn't I, accept I, it.
1: No, you you got to pay me what I'm worth. Don't worry about where I live. If I'm delivering, then I want the money. You know, it doesn't matter if I am and. Sun Valley or in Silicon Valley. Um, I've been hearing this for a while and I hope they, I hope they push back a little.
2: I think this is going to be, this is going to be the debate um, that's to be had. And, you know, we're seeing organizations on both sides of the fence around this. Again, I I think it comes down to, um, you know, the ability to tap into talent. Um, I think it's going to come down to um, how critical it is for that employee to be able to come in and collaborate with their teammates, and how that's going to be done, to drive the work that they're doing, um, and then to your point, it's going to come down to fairness and and how to help employees get the best out of their lives, right? And these are all factors that are going to go into this debate. I don't think there is an easy answer to any of this. I think mm. this is a debate that's being had at every C suite and every board level right now.
0: Erica, do you have any? Uh, have you seen any companies that just said, "Screw it, we're going back to the way it was"? Everybody in the office.
2: I mean, certainly we've seen a couple of CEOs from the major banks uh, come out and say, we think you need to come back to the office. But I think that's going to be the exception, not the rule. Um, I think most employers are saying we've seen flexibility work. Um, We know we need to focus on well-being. I go back to that point because I think it can't be understated. And I think they know this is what workers are asking for. But we have to keep in mind also that it's going to be hybrid. You know, 72% of employers that we surveyed said they're going to go back to some type of hybrid model. I don't think the majority of employers are going to be all in on site or all remote, right? Those extremes don't work because that's not what we've learned during the pandemic. What we've learned is we need flexibility and choice. We need trust and empowerment, that we don't need managers looking at a worker every single minute of every single day to make sure they're producing, that productivity can still be gained in a remote work environment. That's what we've learned. And so the question is, how do we start to embrace that flexibility and craft policies that allow for that level of flexibility and empowerment for the worker? I think that's where we're talking about the revolt, right? It's, are you going to force me to do things in this one way, or are you going to – in trust that I have the ability to still produce the output without being managed every minute of every day. And I think that's the major shift that we're seeing right now.
1: Just quickly, Bob Prince said he thinks the U.S. is in a new environment of state capitalism. I live in Berlin. We have 13 months of parental leave. We have seven, six weeks, seven weeks of of vacation. This is all enforced by the state. Do you think the state is going to bring new regulations to how we work in the U.S.?
2: You know, I I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. I think um, I think we will see um, different entities, communities, organizations, possibly at the state level trying to do what they need to do to attract people to where right. they live, I think that's going to be the big factor, right? I mean, these states want people to move there. They want the talent to be there. And so it's not unreasonable to think that they'll start putting in policies to be able to attract workers. And hopefully that's going to start to influence the government at a federal level. I mean, that's, that's ultimately, I think, would be yeah. beneficial to everyone.
1: Erica, really important to get your perspective. Really appreciate you joining us today. Erica Volini is the global human capital leader at Deloitte.
0: Let's take a look at the global oil market. Brent crude is up about seven tenths of 1% today, 45 cents a barrel, $63.19 a barrel here. That says OPEC Plus is meeting today. And the headlines coming out on the Bloomberg terminal leading with OPEC Plus agrees to gradually increase output over the next three months. Let's get a sense of what that means for these energy markets. We turn to our expert, and that is Dr. Ellen Wald, president. Of transversal Consulting, and also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, uh, Ellen. Thanks so much for joining us here. What are some of the highlights, the takeaways from what you're hearing uh, coming out of the OPEC Plus meeting today?
4: Yeah, this is uh, kind of a, a, an interesting uh, plot twist, you could say, because uh, going into the meeting, it seemed like uh, everyone, uh, and including even. Uh, from the Saudi oil minister seem to be focused on rolling over the current production rates uh, and not really um, having much guidance. But it's emerged that uh, it seems that uh, the group is interested in doing a gradual uh, increase of production. They're looking at increasing total production uh, 350,000 barrels a day in May and then again in June and then an even larger jump in July. But what's even more interesting is that Saudi Arabia is also indicating that uh, it is, it's it's currently holding an extra million barrels a day off the market. That it's going to start putting that back on the market at the same time, also in a gradual sense. So we're really uh, actually looking at it, not an insignificant amount of oil coming back uh, online in May, June, and July. I think what's really notable, though, is that uh, OPEC is actually giving a guidance for for the next three months of what it plans to do. And recently, they've really only been making decisions on a month by month basis. I think this will be very 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 helpful also for U.S. crude producers, which have kind of been left in the dark as to what's going on in terms of of the big uh, national producers.
1: Have the U.S. – well, first of all, why aren't we seeing prices fall?
4: Well, I think uh, it's not all that much uh, oil that they're they're putting back on the market. So, uh, and they kind of telegraphed this a little bit. We did see Brent kind of go up and down a bit as the meeting was going on and leaks were coming out. Um, but I think that in general, some of the global economic news is more positive these days. And so we're not seeing uh, Brent react so much to uh, the OPEC meeting.
1: So in terms of the U.S. shale producers, have they been disciplined, and uh, what, what, is the, what does the output look like from them?
4: Well, it's really interesting because production really stabilized uh, in the U.S. around the you know, 10.9 to 11 million barrel per day rate, and that's down from you know last year where, where they were producing 13 million barrels a day. And a lot of producers, uh, it's interesting, they responded to a uh, survey from the Dallas Fed saying that They are very hesitant to put out, uh, to to increase production, to drill more wells, even though at at, at WTI right now is around $60 a barrel, uh, they could very profitably do so, but they're very hesitant both the uh, constant kind of going back and forth from OPEC is giving them pause, but also there's a lot of concern about the Biden administration, uh, where they're going with these regulations on uh, federal leasing and and so forth, and that that's really causing a lot of hesitancy uh, among them and not really wanting to expand production, even though they could profitably do so.
0: So, Ellen, just looking at Brent crude, you know, it recently it got up to around $72 a barrel. We've now pulled back to 63 Is that a function of maybe European reopening, you know, slower than maybe the market had initially anticipated? Give us a sense of kind of what's driving the market right now.
4: Well, the market uh, has recently really been kind of fluctuating, going up and down a lot. And I do think that um, there was a pullback. I think Brent kind of overdid itself. And so there was uh, a pullback in positioning. uh, And so really, the the 63 range, $65 barrel is is probably a better place for it than into the mid-70s. But absolutely, the, the information from Europe about further lockdowns and travel restrictions is definitely having a damper on prices, though. Oh, there is uh, positive information coming out from the United States in terms of travel uh, that really should offset this.
1: I want to ask you, um, you wrote a book, Saudi Inc., and you studied um, Middle East, uh, Middle East energy, Middle East history at Princeton. You taught Middle East um, history a- as well at Jacksonville. What do you think about the Biden administration's approach to the kingdom?
4: Will it change? Well, I, it's, it's very interesting because they're calling it a reset, but really, if you look at what they're doing, it's not all that different from what uh, the previous administration did. It's not all that different from, from Trump's approach. They ha- aren't taking a particularly different approach with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, both Trump and the Biden administrations have been very specific about wanting to, say, deal with the king of Saudi Arabia as opposed to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. There's definitely, um, you know, that, that's, that's very similar. I don't really see a whole lot of difference other than uh, very specifically in terms of the um, weaponry that was being sold that uh, was being used in the Yemen war. So so I think there are some minor differences, but in general, they really do seem to be staying the course.
1: But they won't – will they speak with the king instead of MBS? I think that was intimated.
4: Well, uh the the Trump administration had the same the same line actually. It oh. almost to the exact same uh, uh wording that they that the Trump would say, you know, I spoke to the right. king, to to King Solomon. I think um you know, they will have to deal with MBS at at some point, but I do think there's a very strong desire to deal with the the guy on top.
1: All right, Ellen, I'm excited to dig into your book. So, it was great that we had you on as well. Ellen Wald Um, She wrote Saudi Inc. and she's a a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, president of Transversal Consulting. Now let's bring in Timothy Fiore. He's the chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey at the Institute for Supply Management. And Tim, the uh, U.S. manufacturing expansion was the fastest we've seen since 1983. Um, Was this expected, this kind of rebound?
5: Well, you know, what a fantastic report. I don't think I expected anything this strong. I mean, the last time we saw a PMI number this strong, I was just starting my career 40 years ago. So (laughs) a really good number. We had seven seven of the 10 sub-indexes all set modern-day records, if not all-time records. So really led by the demand side, new orders, records since June of 2004. We had customer inventories that were all-time records, the lowest level ever, empty shelves everywhere. We had, and we ended up with a backlog at record lows at the sixty-seven point five. So, you know, demand is kind of leading the way here, and manufacturing is leading the country out of this, you know, this bad situation of twenty twenty. And you know, it's all systems go. We ended the quarter really well.
0: Yeah, this is extraordinary. I, I like your comment, Tim, about manufacturing leading the way. We that's certainly been the case here. Is this a case of um, uh, our economy gearing up for what is expected to be? a real reopening as we progress throughout the year? Is this kind of priming the pump for expected demand?
5: Well, you know, we talked last year in the April-May timeframe about a V-shaped recovery. Manufacturing absolutely saw a yep. V-shaped recovery. We shut down in uh, in April, May, and we bounced back in July, and we're fully running by August. So, And we've continued to climb out since then, and it's, it's pure. It's demand-driven. We're still constrained by labor, not only at our panelist companies but at their suppliers. We've got transportation constraints because of all the confusion and the expedited freight that has to occur to keep factories running. But I think we're into a pure demand-driven expansion here where I don't really see any end in sight. And even when the new order levels start to ease, we've got to refill all this inventory. I mean, we have customer inventories way low. Our own inventories are way low. And we've got a bunch of backlog we have to burn off. So you know, Q2 looks really good. Q3, I would say the same.
1: How difficult is it going to be to catch up i saw that um ford has been idling some plants that make the f-150 my heart kind of skipped a beat there um <laughs> they have a chip shortage that we all know about but i mean this is a product that people depend on how much of a problem is it
5: well i think you really got to take your hats off of the manufacturing people across the country they're really struggling they're working very hard this is not an easy job it's blocking and tackling every minute of the day New things keep popping up. It's like whack-a-mole. You show up the next morning, you fix the problem. The next day, there's another problem. That's going to continue for probably another four to six months. Uh, And they do a great job at it. So product continues to flow. I mean, we've gotten that customer inventory down way too low. But the manufacturing people are out there trying to get you what you need, and they're pretty good at it. So uh, just be a little patient.
0: Absolutely, Tim. And talk to us about the uh, uh, – Transportation. We've we, we've seen lots of stories about ports, backs up, backups, uh, ports, uh, rail traffic kind of sitting idle, uh, containers going back empty. Gives, just give us a sense of kind of the transportation infrastructure and how that's impacting manufacturing. Leaving canals aside,
5: yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'll leave this to that. So that's a European problem primarily, not a U.S. problem. But generally, when the manufacturing economy starts to heat up, you see it first in transportation. And the reason is is factories need need product, but they can't wait a week for the product to show up in a full truck. So they tell the transporter, go and pick up a half a truck. Well, that really means you need two trucks for one delivery. And then it just kind of compounds from there. Since the month of November, we've had increasing comments about transportation difficulties. We're now running somewhere around 33% of my general comments are transportation-related, and they're up from last month. So we definitely have not peaked yet. It's going to continue into April. Probably into May. The indications on the port issue initially were around May or June. Now it's looking like maybe midsummer, but that's all good. It's all it's all means that we have supply chain constraints because we have an abnormal amount of demand. It's all positive.
1: What kind of pricing comments are you getting? Inflation?
5: Well, we only had half a percent of our entire panel that said prices were down. Half a percent. So that's not, that's like zero, <laughs> and this is like the third month of that. So we you know we have some that are reporting same. But steel prices continue to grow. Uh, the plastics, uh, all the petrochemical and plastics areas were really impacted by the weather that hit the uh, the Gulf Coast back in February, March. About 18% of my general comments were re- weather-related back to that event because it was so severe on the equipment and machinery that uh, it takes a little while to repair. So prices are going to continue to go up. Aluminum is skyrocketing. You know, Copper, brass, same thing. As long as there's demand continuing, you're going to see raw material input prices go up, too. Hey, Tim, thanks so
0: much for joining us. Uh, really interesting uh, report this month showing just extraordinary strength coming out of the United States manufacturing uh, sector, continuing the strength that we've seen from the lows of last year. Tim Fury, Chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey for the Institute for Supply Management based in Miami, Florida. And, and it, Matt, it, it really is amazing how, how resilient uh, the United States manufacturing base has been. Now, let's get out to Sarah Fryer.
1: She's a Bloomberg technology reporter who has been doing a deep dive into the misinformation spreading across social media, specifically Facebook, in regards to vaccines. Sarah, you um, have interviewed, for example, one woman who doesn't believe in vaccine-induced herd immunity. Does she get this from Facebook?
3: she gets this from, from Instagram, which is, of course, owned by Facebook. What happens here is people fall into the personalization that Facebook and Instagram provide them. If you start looking into, this woman started out looking into holistic medicine, alternative treatment. She felt um, bullied by her doctors during a cancer treatment and was looking for another way to stay healthy. Suddenly, she's getting this information about vaccines. It's not really information at all. It's, it's Fearing her wrong, and a lot of the people who are telling her, "Oh, you just need to take this, you know, holistic healing method, or detox in this method, or um, you try these techniques." They're selling supplements, they're selling essential oils, they're selling, um, you know, wellness retreats. So she's she's not really getting legitimate information from doctors, and we're seeing that happen a a lot on Facebook. It's more about the fear. Um, The kind of messages that spread on Facebook are the ones that that make people comment and share. Uh, That's what tells the newsfeed algorithm that it's a serious post that more people should see. And so these lies about the vaccine, particularly lies that are targeting women, which we can talk about in a second, are are just unable to be tamped down by the company.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Sarah. You know, it's just kind of what we're hearing from Facebook here, but first let's, why are women being targeted here?
4: Well, it
3: just goes to the history of the anti-vaccination movement. It has always been about scaring women out of giving shots on time or at all to their their newborns and their young children. So this is this is a demographic that is already su- subject to information from anti-vaxxers. And with the COVID-19 vaccination movement, it's strategic on their part. They see that as an adjacent vulnerable group, and they are telling women that the shot will affect their fertility, um, that there's there's some uh, spike protein in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that connects to the same kind of protein that creates a human placenta, and therefore, if they were to take it, their bodies would become confused. And and that is just not true. And, And many doctors, including Pfizer even itself, has put out a statement But that scientific explanation of why that's not true, um, filled with with explanations of amino acid chains, that just simply doesn't go viral on Facebook the way that that fear does. So much easier to share a personal story of fear than to share something that's based in real science.
1: So the concern is one of First Amendment rights, I guess, from Mark Zuckerberg's perspective, right? People should be able to say what they want, and I guess, whether it's true or not. Um, but then if you have an algorithm aiming lies at people who are susceptible, that becomes something that the government should worry about.
3: Well, first of all, let's, let's clear up. There is no such thing as the First Amendment on Facebook. Facebook is not a government entity. They don't have any any guarantee for you in terms of the First Amendment of free speech. Second of all, Facebook well no, but he seems to but Zuckerberg seems
1: to want to stick to the to, principles of the Constitution
3: He wants to but but that's also convenient for Facebook because that means they don't have to do as much leading as content and they don't have to take as much responsibility for for it um, what happens on Facebook is is that this this content it's not treated neutrally by the algorithm you know it hands off a approach to, what happens on Facebook means the algorithm is in charge, and the algorithm is always going to spread that which generates more engagement, more shares, the things that Facebook needs for its own future. They want more revenue, they want more engagement, and so so that is the the natural um, unblemished version of Facebook, and the rest is is enforcement decisions beyond that, like who should be banned, where should we put labels about what might be false, um, but the, the core of the product, the design of the product is really what is at issue here, and, and if you we talk to doctors who are trying to become more social media friendly using Instagram, using Facebook, um, even using Twitter and, and TikTok to try to spread information that's a little bit more palatable, a little bit more shareable, um, more buzzy, but it simply isn't reaching the communities that have already built this personalization. Uh, Facebook has automatically built personalization for them around what kinds of people they listen to, so they're not really getting these these good bouts of information into that into that normal experience. So it's really a tough situation.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult. And this is something that Facebook and its users have been dealing with for a long time about a. a many topics, but uh, this one is very, very Uh, uh, interesting, potentially dangerous. Sarah Fryer, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah's a technology reporter for Bloomberg, um, you know, covering Facebook, and she wrote a great book on Instagram. I recommend uh, that. So she's really, really in deep with all things that's going on at Facebook. And again, as we try to get this vaccine out there, one of the concerns that we've heard from many uh, experts from the Johns Hopkins University and other places is vaccine hesitancy uh, is going to become more and more of an issue, and uh, social media certainly playing a role there thanks for
1: listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller
0: 1973 and i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at sweeney. before the podcast
5: you can always catch us worldwide at bloomberg radio